0: Hello and welcome back to the IFLR Closing Conditions Podcast. My name is John Crabb, Managing Editor of IFLR and your host. We've had something of a hiatus in recent weeks. The COP26 event in Glasgow took up a lot of time, but happily generated a lot of excellent content, all of which you can see now on IFLR.com. Things have settled down again since, and we're back for another run of interviews with carefully selected guests and topics from legal markets around the world. Today's guest is Scott Shea, Chairman and Co-Founder of New York-based Signature Bank, a Manhattan-based full-service commercial bank with just under 100 billion dollars in assets. Scott is a prominent member of the Jewish community in New York and a published author and an all-around pretty interesting man. Thank you so much for joining me today Scott. I'm happy to report we are breaking from the norm a little with this recording and are actually at Signature Bank's headquarters in midtown Manhattan. Um, we've spoken a lot in the past on a number of topics and I've always enjoyed hearing your take on things which don't tend to always total line so to speak. Um, we've got plenty of fascinating topics to discuss today. We're going to talk about crypto and CBDCs, and later on in the podcast, we'll discuss ESG and labeling. But first, I'd like to discuss an ongoing issue that's been fairly prominent in the banking space for several years, the bank- LIBOR transition. So back in February 2020, alongside a number of your peers in the mid-sized banking sector in the US, you penned an open letter to then-Vice Chairman of the Federal Reserve, Randall Qualls, and Comptroller of the OCC, Joseph Otting, as well as the current FTCIC Chair, Jelena McWilliams. In the letter, you outlined concerns with the NY NYBED's chosen replacement to LIBOR, the Secured Overnight Financing Rate, or SOFR, saying that a one-size-fits-all index approach was not appropriate for a bank of your size, and suggested instead that banks be able to choose an IOSCO complaint rate. Um, this is pretty much what has happened in that time. So, what are your thoughts now on how the last two years have progressed, and how important do you think it is that the U.S. market is allowed to continue to function in this multi-rate capacity going forward?
1: Well, first of all, John, thank you. Welcome to Signature Bank. Um, it's a pleasure to host you here. Uh, so, first of all, as you know, I was a uh, outspoken critic of the transition from LIBOR because I think that the the suggested replacement so far was far worse than LIBOR, even with all of LIBOR's many, many difficulties. It's controlled, SOFR is controlled by four banks, really? Fourteen banks if you get to 100% of market share. So again, it's some, it's a rate that we have no transparency in terms of actually how it's done. Yes, we can see how it's reported, but what's going on behind the curtain? Mystery to everybody, but those fourteen participants. And when you're looking at a liquid market, you want to have a lot of participants. You don't want to have four participants that probably have 90% of the market share. And it's been a befuddlement to me that the big banks, the the really really big banks have been so able to muscle this through. And yet they have. And you know, we have to acknowledge that um that uh that they want to have this and and, and it is very useful. I mean, I'm not suggesting a conspiracy theory because I don't think it's a conspiracy theory. I think it's very useful for them to be able to control the rate that most derivatives are set are set by and are are, are um, adjusted by, and the base rate for an index. Unfortunately, it's an index. So far, is an index that relates to transactions secured by U.S. government securities in huge volume. And therefore, for most of the rest of the world, it's, it's not relevant. So now, SOFR has essentially been adopted by the big banks. And I would say, uh, that in, in, in using it as an index, it's, it's working because any index will work in terms of just assigning a number. But it's turned out to be a mess. Uh, I don't think, uh, Companies really understand it. Um, Some of the big banks have been adding different credit spread adjustments. I don't know if you're aware of that, but there's this whole, depending on whether you choose a one month, three month, or six months so far, big banks have put out these credit spreads, which are totally opaque. Um, Not really understandable to anybody, including other banks who are participating with them. So... I think we've gone from LIBOR to SOFR from, from bad to really much worse. And, you know, banks like ourselves, I think, are going to be recommending AmeriboR or other instruments wherever available. I mean, I thought it was, and I'll say one last thing, I thought it was ironic that a couple of the larger regulators have, have, have criticized uh, the Bloomberg, Bisbee, as it's called, the Bloomberg, uh, bank index rate and yet when you add the credit adjustment to the uh, sofa rate it's far more arbitrary so I don't even get it and um, but you know we'll adjust to life under SOFR and under this regime and, and hopefully over time SOFR will fall of its own weight. Okay great so
0: G- given what you've just said, that the the characteristics of Main Street's loan market aren't really represented by SOFR. Um And you mentioned Maribor and you mentioned Bisbee. Do you think these rates or other rates are kind of what gaps do they fill that perhaps SOFR
1: doesn't give to a bank of your size? Well, I think the key thing is that SOFR doesn't reflect credit risk. Again, it's secured by treasuries. And... The problem is, now we're in an unusual rate environment now where everything is pretty close to zero. But in a normal rate environment, which, for example, what happened in 2008, is that the repo market fell dramatically um, at a time that um, there was a credit dislocation. Now, that's exactly the opposite of what you want to do during a credit, um, during a credit dislocation. What you really want is a rate that expands. Because you want to attract credit into, uh, you want to attract money into credit. What worries me and I, why I think that it was just it going to SOFR and making that a core rate is ridiculous is that let's say that happens in the future. Let's say that Ameribor, LIBOR, Fed funds are all at 5% someday in the future, which could happen given that we have five ish percent inflation. And now there's a credit crunch, maybe for whatever reason, who knows. And suddenly SOFR will go down to 3% or 2% because there'll be a demand for treasuries and a demand for the safest assets. Whereas because there's a credit crunch, LIBOR, Ameribor, let's say it'll go up to 6 or 7% or would. Well, if everything's tied to SOFR, then if the Fed doesn't want the credit markets to totally seize up and for any remaining monies to be withdrawn from the credit markets, they're going to be in the funny position of having to perhaps tighten credit, tighten rates because they're going to have to push so far up. I think, again, totally ridiculous. And I think the Fed inserting itself into such a, you know, such a rate, um, I think is going to create constraints on them for future monetary policy that I don't think they've quite grappled with. Okay, so why
0: would you say that this problem has kind of arisen primarily in the U.S. markets and U.S. dollar LIBOR, and is the same issue happening in Europe and the U.K.,
1: or is this American problem only? That's a good question. First of all, in some countries, they have gone to a credit-sensitive base rate, which I think makes most sense. But having said that, the real problem is um, that... Uh, the dollar is the primary unless we mess it up and you know we could do that as the United States unless we mess it up the dollar is the base lending rate for currencies internationally I mean we're going to talk later about crypto but essentially crypto is denominated in dollars Uh, very little is denominated in other currencies it's all force effects from foreign exchange from the dollar so you have the dollar as the leading currency so what we, if we if we mess up the dollar and the dollar credit rates, that would be another negative for the dollar's leading role in the world, which is why I think it's so critical.
0: Um, I think that's a pretty good segue into the next topic, which a very different topic and one I know you've been very vocal about for some time, which, as you mentioned, is cryptocurrency. Um, so let's talk first about central bank digital currencies, or CBDCs, which uh, I think you've been against for several years. Um, they've only just really come into the public eye in the last year or two. It's so not just in US, but globally. So do you want to tell me your thoughts on
1: CBDCs and government-issued digital currencies more generally? I actually have been thinking about this issue for a long time. I didn't have the vocabulary CBDC because it didn't really exist, but I did have the concept that the Federal Reserve could issue a um, a, a national currency entirely digitally, and that it would drive out cash and drive out other forms of, 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 of economic exchange. And I wrote an article back in 2013 on the Cashless Society. And again, if you read it now, you'll wonder, why didn't I just say CBDC? Well, the, the term didn't really exist at the time. But I think that CBDC is actually a bad idea as well. But I think it's certainly a lot worse than so for LIBOR. Um, because the issue here is that if there is a national digital currency, that means that all of your economic transactions can be monitored and verified as easily by a government official as you changing the volume on the computer to uh or or making an adjustment to, and clicking on your computer and that means that if the government doesn't like one in one one party is in control and the government doesn't like the people are going to make donations to the nra well no money will flow to them and on the other hand if another party is in control and they don't want any donations to go to planned parenthood and i'm just taking these as an example well no money can flow if the Uh, government doesn't want it. Further, they may not go that far, but they'll know you either donated to Planned Parenthood or donated to the NRA, and that'll be easily searchable, easily listable. So there is the risk of it being coercive. A few years back, when Mayor Bloomberg was mayor, when uh, Michael Bloomberg was mayor of New York, he wanted to ban the sale of 16-ounce sugary drinks. And... That was very difficult to do, but, and there were all these work ones. but if again, you had a national currency, then a national digital currency, you could just say, well, nobody can buy um, soft drinks above 16 ounces because the transfer won't go through. Or there's a cross-check of your database. And John, it looks like you, you know, maybe you gained a few pounds. And so we, the government think you shouldn't buy 16 ounce sugary drinks the other guy over there is a thin guy uh, or gal he she he she or he is fine but you nah not really um that's a bad thing for you and I, i while it sounds silly it's really easy and you know we have the overton principle you know if something can be done it will be and this is not difficult it could be done today on software and and indeed the the issue is is that to know whether or not you don't want to make things too easy for for surveillance i mean to know whether or not uh someone's making a donation to this or that political organization right now you'd need a subpoena and to know whether everybody was donating or not donating you'd need a subpoena of everybody but if you have a cbdc you don't need a subpoena of anyone you just do a quick cross reference i mean it's as easy as check it'll be as easy as checking your your, your, you know, your credit card bill or an Excel spreadsheet on uh, for a government official. It's not hard. And what worries me fundamentally is there's a term I used, and I used this again at the Economic Club last week, which I call an e And it's a mashup of the term singularity for those of uh, your listeners who uh, know about or who have read about the concept of the time when AI will be more intelligent than uh, than uh, humans if that comes and obviously the word economic or the term of when there was a singularity in the whole universe came into being so it was it's sort of an ironic mashup but the term incongularity is when you come to a place where cbdc is the only form of transaction essentially we as human beings can be controlled in a way beyond our imagining because as I said transactions can be controlled they can be monitored it's how what you think is frequently expressed and how you spend money and truly we would have could have thought police in that sort of way and if the government said you know what um, we want to force people to spend They could say, well, 5% of your money is going to go away every uh, three months or every one month or every whatever. And we want you to keep money in the bank or not in the bank. We want you to keep money in CBDC. Well, we're going to change rates tomorrow. You'd have no alternative. There's nowhere else to go. And so human behavior could be much more easily controlled. Plus, if all money is in a CBDC, ultimately, whether you like banks or not, Ultimately, that means that all credit decisions will be made by some sort of central authority. I mean, that started to be the, there was even some discussion at the recent hearing um, for the nominee for the OCC. But setting that aside, if there's a CBDC and all money is essentially acc- accumulated at the Fed, the Fed will have to decide how to lend that out. And again, you want to multiple actors, you'll have credit allocation determined by a central authority. I don't think that's such a great idea, and I I think that fundamentally undermines what a capitalist society, the good part of capitalism, which is creative destruction and reallocation of credit.
0: Very interesting. So given that it seems it's the civil liberty issue that you're most concerned with, what about if you were to remove the government aspect of a CBDC and have a kind of decentralized private sector global currency that wasn't controlled
1: by any specific government or person i think that's pretty intriguing the issue is going to be look is you have a spectrum so i painted one into the spectrum which is cbdc that is totally monitored the other and end in the spectrum may be monero which is a anonymized digital currency which is very hard to track anybody the problem with cbdc i've just explained and i think they are severe problems And I think problems that ultimately make it unacceptable for at least going above a certain, maybe small dollar amount. Um, not small, but modest dollar amount. And on the other hand, having a system where, uh, Monero or or another currency that's totally untrackable, where you could have human trafficking, drug trafficking, terrorist financing, um, anything going on and the government won't have any ability to monitor that. I mean, to a certain degree, it's good to be able to have some monitoring capability and have some friction in the system. Uh, I think ultimately the other problem with decentralized transactions entirely is that if you're an institution, if you're CalPERS and someone steals your a rogue employee steals your keys uh, the private keys um, you know and and takes a billion dollars there's actually no one to go to there's no way to get the money back and so friction does have some positives I mean it's a pain but You, to a certain degree, you can't, you can't call the bank of Bitcoin. You can't call the bank of Monero. You can't call, um, anyone. And even, you know, that's become a problem for some of, for, and there's, there's all sorts of Twitter feeds. You can read about this for Tether, which is a stable coin based outside of the United States. If money gets hacked, it's just gone. There's no what, there's nobody to ask. And I don't know that we're going to want a, society where someone can lose all of their money, and there's nothing to do about it. There's no legal recourse. Away from CBDC, then, and more in terms of kind of,
0: regular cryptocurrencies and blockchain. Do you think the these emerging technologies have the potential to completely change and rewrite the banking sector or the way
1: that the financial sector works these days? You have to um, define and. And, and categorize what we're talking about because there's sub, there's different uses of money one is as a store of value and bitcoin has been proving itself as a store of value where you you have an investment in bitcoin and it can go up your value your your value actually as the value is appreciated but other cryptocurrencies can be stores of value and the, the thing about Bitcoin that, that helps is that it's self-limited, which is important. The other important aspect of a currency, and this is critical in any functioning society, is that it's a stable form of payment. And to a certain degree, that conflicts with a, form of, a stable form of value. So you can have gold, which could be a form of value but it's not really that usable. You, you're not gonna wanna buy your laptop here or this microphone from using gold or chipping away at your bars of gold. It's not easily transferable, et cetera, et cetera. But, and also it may be worth more or less tomorrow, which also makes transacting very difficult. So I think that there is a revolution coming in the way that payments will be made. And signatures tried to be at the forefront of that, but that requires stable value. And and that's why we built the uh, Signet, which is essentially a stable coin within a walled garden. Um, and we really um, think that in five years or ten years, you won't really recognize the payment systems that we have today <clears throat> they will be in a different form
0: obviously for my listeners and i'd say more generally in the space that the question of regulating crypto in u.s has been pretty fundamental for quite a while now so and there's kind of many different ways that this can be approached
1: what do you think would be the best way to go about regulating the crypto space in, in the u.s specifically a number of people have offered different ideas from just the regulators should get get out to there should be a central agency just focused on crypto. But again, I think that people are misdefining terms. I think the concept of stable coins and stable transfers of currency, particularly when they are uh, traceable and there's, there's, a, there's a knowing customer, I think that's very different than anonymous cryptocurrencies where And the more anonymous you get, the more worrisome. So I think lumping the two together is a mistake, um, and uh, and I and, and and I I think there's also a tension between whether or not stablecoins are going to be the purview of the SEC or the purview of the banking regulators. Um, I think that um, those issues are certainly coming to fore. And they're complicated politically, Um, but I I think that that certain things are going to have to be fixed in the rules and not even in the rules in the legislation because when much of the banking law was written in the '70s and transfer acts funds transfer acts were written in the '70s and the bank holding company act I think is from also 40 plus years ago. Um, since it's been updated. These rules need to be looked at. I actually think it'd be better for Congress to take a legislative look and come up with a framework than to try to have regulators look at this under existing regulation. I don't think it under this existing law. I just don't think it works. And I've personally spent some time looking at this. And I, I don't know how the regulators can uh, confront or not confront grapple is a better word with the implications of cryptocurrencies and stable coins i mean the electronic funds transfer act of 1978 is the guiding law in 1978 if you would have described a stable coin or a cryptocurrency or a decentralized finance people wouldn't have even known what you were talking about i mean there were mainframe computers and even if you look at the references in that bill in that law just they don't even make any sense anymore and to so to try to cobble together regulation based on that i just don't think it's feasible i think this needs to be done legislatively it's fascinating to hear
0: about crypto and blockchain and and DeFi from the perspective of the banking sector itself it's not every day you hear that so thank you um let's move on to another hugely important and timely topic which is ESG. Um, I recently read an opinion piece that you published discussing potential abuses of ESG scoring by credit agencies and other companies that are offering rating services to investors looking to make sustainable investments. Um, so in the wake of COP26, much to be made of how these ratings are put together and a mishmash of agencies that are all providing kind of similar but varying services with little oversight or transparency. Um, so you had some pretty powerful words to say about a few of those agencies and their recent practices. Could you maybe give us an overview of, of your thoughts
1: there? So first of all, I am a big believer that I think banks should be a force for good. We were one of the first banks to publicly state that we were not going to make loans in the fossil fuel industry. Um, and we look at everything. Look, we're a bank. We're not in, in, you know, we're not a, we're not an energy company ourselves, but we look at everything we do in the framework of what does this mean about our carbon footprint? What does it mean generally about carbonization? And I think that, I think a few things. First, there's a limited amount of a limited amount that I think people can expect to be done by banks through regulation. I'm not, we can't stop producing fossil fuels and actually have this interview because there will be no electricity from which to allow this broadcast to be published. And we have to, I think, go and think again more globally. I'm a big proponent of nuclear power. We're shutting down nuclear power plants in the United States, which are the best carbon, we're the best answer to carbonization. We shut down one in New York. More are going to go, I think, two more are going in California. And at the same time as we're talking about being concerned about the environment actually the carbon footprint of new york is increasing tr- tremendously um in, in, in because of the shutdown of our new york uh, nuclear power plant so i think we should have modesty about what can be accomplished and i'm a big believer in the mo- in the saying you know I, I, well let me say this i just think that there's there is a fair amount of virtue signaling going on in the arena and we have to focus on things that will really work. I mean, uh, the best thing to do is to have a carbon tax. And that solves a lot of problems. Trying to do things by regulation as opposed to just figuring out how to create the economic incentives is, um, I think, wasteful, inefficient, and will hinder our ability to lead the world and i think we're trying to do too much by regulation and not enough by creating a carbon tax which i think everybody agrees is the most and and we have to set everything aside from other considerations i mean to say that you know one car is union produced and another car is non-union produced well it may be you're for against unions that's a separate conversation but if you're worried and really believe that we face an existential threat To humanity by the amount of carbon that we're producing well that's sort of besides the point for reducing carbon in the environment and a carbon tax would be a good idea and you know what it should be a negative carbon tax too if someone invents a way to efficiently take carbon out of the atmosphere you know um direct carbon reduction which there are some nascent technologies doing just that well that's great they should benefit from a negative car they should benefit from negative negative carbon contribution but i think the thing that i wrote about and emphasized in the article is that because esg is becoming so embedded in all of investings by bloomberg estimates that by 2025 i believe 53 trillion dollars of world investment will be under a esg framework so investment managers don't know how to grapple with that i mean but if you look you're in my office if you look well the bloomberg went blank now but if you if the bloomberg were on if i tapped it you would see in the corner of every security there's the you can get esg scores from morningstar bloomberg itself and, um, MSCI, and if you subscribe, other, other, um, agencies. And the problem is, is that when you reduce everything to a score and don't know exactly what is in it, that's when the bad stuff starts. Because it's easy to tuck other priorities into those scores that are insidious, um, certainly opaque nobody has any clue I've asked some invest some leading senior managers of investment companies who we would all of you listeners would recognize and they don't in many cases know how some of those scores are built so the article I wrote was about Morningstar which is tucking um, anti-Israelism anti-zionism um, and really and really um, uh, uh, using sources that are for the destruction of the state of israel into their scoring under their human rights rubric now if someone wants to boycott israel that's their business they can do it you know it's a free country um, you want to boycott france that's you know it's a free country but when you tuck in scores so that the person in peoria who has no desire to boycott israel is decreasing their investment in israel because of a score they don't understand don't get have no clue about then that is really bad and the (coughs) the esg and the rating agencies in to a certain degree pride themselves on their lack of transparency and and the fact that they have they're creating their 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 work in a non-transparent basis, because they believe, and Morningstar in particular believes that it's not right for anybody to really question um, uh, how they get to their opinions. But it's not right, and I and I and I show in the um, I showed in the article, and I I showed it also. I talk about this more in detail in my book Conspiracy U, a case study where toward the end of the book I actually show a Morningstar is embedded opinions from folks who seek the destruction of israel as new sources like the iran daily like mandawas like dan watch um electronic intifada and again if you're transparent and you're saying okay we're creating a scorn and it includes an anti-israel component you can do that it's a free country it's free speech but don't impose that as a leading esg raider on people who have no desire to boycott or to decrease their investment in Israel. So how would you uh,
0: suggest solving this issue? What kind of oversight or standardization or kind of regulatory intervention would you impose on these companies to make sure they weren't doing this practice?
1: Well, I think to a certain degree in the same way that they think there should be third party examiners of um, companies, I think they should submit to third party uh reports that will uh, and they have to i think be open about their um the way they arrive at their opinions the sources that they use and to allow for example maybe independent and cons- uh, not consultant that's perhaps consulting firms perhaps accounting firms to do a report um i don't really think government should do it because again i am afraid of the politicization so Companies may want to create ESG scores that make this, the party that's currently in power, happy. And next time, if there's another uh, presidential, if there's another president, another party involved, it'll make them happy. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not for government doing it, but I do think there needs to be third party because right now, the ESG raiders, basically, there is no oversight and you know what's good for the goose is good for the gander. If you believe in transparency, great. Um, let's have some transparency. And I and I think you know, shining light sh- light is the best. Dis- you know, sunlight's the best disinfectant.
0: On, on that kind of note, last year um, we were talking, you told me that the uh, as the U.S. economy emerges from the COVID nineteen pandemic, you were hopeful that th- things would be done to kind of take the economy back to its strongest position to become the strongest system in the world once more um and you said that limiting the amount of new regulation imposed on the banking system would be one way of doing that so do you think that a year into the biden administration that is happening or has
1: happened well i don't think i i don't think it's per se limiting i think it's allowing if there's abuses they should be clearly dealt with but I think that the idea of limiting the size of banks who could potentially compete with the big banks is a, just a wrong-headed policy. It's wrong, it's counterproductive. More than wrong-headed, it's just counterproductive. And um, uh, I, I would say this, that that the regulators to date, I think, are um, uh, in the same place. The big change that happened on a, from regulators, from the regulation itself, I'd say the big thing that happened during the uh, Trump administration was the passage of Senate Bill 2155, which was legislative. But I don't think there was a huge change among the regulators, and I don't, from going from the Obama administration to the Trump administration, and I really don't think there's been a huge change going from the Trump administration to the to the uh, Biden administration. So. I think that's a good thing in terms of continuity. Um, and I think, I think the question is, um, whether there's going to be any legislation. Now, having said that, um, uh, there is a, uh, new, uh, the, 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 uh, comptroller, the currency position has been left blank and so it's been in a caretaker state for the last, um, for the last year. So if that were to change, that could have an impact because there, um, the FDIC is governed by a board, the Federal Reserve is governed by a board, so there's more continuity. Um, in the case of the controller of the currency, one person makes all decisions and is the decider. So there could be more abrupt consequences um, depending on the person who is appointed. And since, again, they're in a caretaker position, that still is yet unknown.
0: Okay, Um thank you so much for your responses, it's been fascinating so far. Um, you, you just mentioned your book, Conspiracy You, which is sitting right in front of me. Um, I believe it's about the university system and anti-Zionism in the US. I'm looking just forward to out. reading it, um, so congratulations on having that published. Do you want to give us uh, a quick read-through
1: of, of what it is and why it's so important? Thank you, I really appreciate that. Um, so Conspiracy U, in a nutshell, explains how conspiracy theories are masquerading as scholarship at universities across the country. And I've read books and I show books. I, sh- I focus on Northwestern University, which is my alma mater, but I show how books that cannot be understood without presupposing a conspiracy theory are being published by Duke University Press, Stanford University Press, are being uh, written by academics. And what really worries me is that conspiracy theories are unfalsifiable. And if students are being taught conspiracy theories in college, boy, when they become leaders of society, business people, people in government, people who are political leaders, we're in for deep trouble. And what I tried to do in my book is unpack just what these conspiracy theories are what is a conspiracy theory why it's different than a theory about a conspiracy and i propose ways to help the university system heal because it's really unhealthy when students are taught what to think and not how to think okay scott i'm uh, looking forward to reading that
0: um thank you so much for your time today it's been as i said it's been fascinating i'm sure listeners will find it thank you for your time john thank you and goodbye Thank you very much for listening to the IFLR Closing Conditions Podcast. Please subscribe to our podcast channel to access all of our previous recordings and to get notifications of upcoming editions. And don't forget to check IFLR.com for more discussions on all the topics discussed today and much more. Thank you and goodbye.